Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. David W. Patton joined the church early on in the Restoration and was a very powerful missionary. In fact, the events that I'm going to describe occurred, I think, between his third and fourth missions. He had been serving, and he came back to Kirtland. He went out on an appointment to the town of Avon, Ohio. Now again, David W. Patton was a powerfully built man. In fact, by the descriptions of church history, he stood about six feet, one inches tall, around 200 pounds, with a dark complexion, dark hair, and black eyes. He was described as a very handsome man. I wouldn't know anything about that. A very handsome man, powerfully built. It was also said that David Patton had the gift of healing, and that he was constantly in demand to exercise that priesthood gift from the Lord. On occasion now, as I said, he went to Avon, Ohio to fulfill a preaching assignment. Now, the place where the meeting was going to be held, other meetings had been held there in the past. And there was a man who was referred to as the county bully. He was constantly harassing and breaking up the meetings and heckling the speakers while he showed up to Elder Patton's meeting. And sure enough, in the middle of the meeting, he begins to heckle Elder Patton, asking for a sign. Cast out the devil, he said. Elder Patton evidently warned the man. And finally, when the man would not cease and desist in his harassment, Elder Patton quietly, it says, and calmly came down off the stand, grabbed the man by the nap of the neck and the seat of the pants, bum-rushed him to the back door, and according to the sources, threw him out the back door 10 feet and landed on a woodpile. The audience began to snicker that Elder Patton had indeed cast out the devil, body and soul. Now, there are other things that happened with Elder Patton. Supposedly, he had a vision or an experience with Cain himself, the one who killed Abel. We'll talk about that at another time. But my point is this. In somewhere in 1837, I think, no one's really sure exactly when this happened. Thomas B. Marsh and David Patton traveled back to Kirtland, and Kirtland, the prophet Joseph, was under fire. Apostasy and dissension were rife and rampant everywhere, especially among some of the leaders of the church. Elder Patton had not been there. He was not part of that, but he had heard rumors, and supposedly he was going to come back to Kirtland and set Joseph aright. Well, and at least according to the sources we've got, 
Elder Patton went after the prophet Joseph Smith. Now, mind you, by this time, he's a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And supposedly, according to the sources, the prophet Joseph was angry and indignant and gave Elder Patton a swift kick in the backside. Not figuratively, literally. I don't know all of the details, but whatever happened, it supposedly brought Elder Patton to his senses. He repented for rebelling against the prophet and felt so bad in his repentance that he returned to the prophet Joseph Smith and he said to him, I have prayed to the Lord and asked him that he might let me give my life as a martyr to the cause. The prophet Joseph was saddened by that comment and said, oh, brother David, when a man of your faith prays for something like that, generally he gets it. Well, we now fast forward to October of 1838. A group of Latter-day Saints were kidnapped by Missouri mobs. Captain Patton, Parley P. Pratt, and others were formed up into a militia group to go after them. A group of Latter-day Saints were in the militia. They searched all night. James Hendricks was in that group. I told you about him earlier. And they finally, at sunrise, found the kidnappers camped on the banks of Crooked River. As they approached Crooked River from the east, they were backlit by the rising sun. The mob and one of the sentries saw them coming and said, who goes there? And the next thing, they opened fire on Captain Patton and the group of Latter-day Saints. Captain Patton sounded the charge and with no fear, charged right into the guns of the mob. The mob scattered and began to run down the river. It is said in the account, Elder Pratt's description is most telling, that Captain Patton was chasing the mob away when one of the mobbers spun out from behind a tree and fired from the hip with a 50 caliber rifle and hit Captain Patton right in the gut. Well, two other Latter-day Saints were killed in that initial barrage. Captain Patton was wounded. It is a touching and a beautiful story of which I will tell you the details later. But Captain Patton was carried back when he could go no further, surrounded by Heber C. Kimball, the prophet Joseph, Hiram Smith, and his own wife and others. Captain Patton looked at the brethren and said, brethren, you have held me here by your prayers. I beg of you in faith, let me go. There is a crown laid up in store. I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. The brethren knelt in prayer. Captain Patton looked up at his wife and said to her, and I quote, this is so powerful, and said to her, oh, whatever else you do, never deny the faith. And with that, David W. Patton was gone becoming the first apostolic martyr of this dispensation, one of the great heroes of our time. But again, 
not a perfect man and never claimed to be. I love that story because some of you, little do you know, are heroes. Your missionary service, I get, I receive notes from you all the time in the commentary on these firesides. And you talk about your missions and where you served and where you've been and what you're doing and making masks like my wife is doing. And, and you are heroes. You don't know it, but you're heroes. Not only to your children and grandchildren now, but to a posterity that's coming after you. And you and I both know how imperfect you are. Next story. I received this story. Mindy sent me this story, and I was so taken by it that I asked for permission to share it with you. The year was 1881, and the place was Switzerland. John Bueller became interested in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he began to attend their meetings. And everyone in the community hated the Mormons, as they called them. But John felt something. He comments that his own father, if he had been alive, would have so opposed his baptism, he never would have allowed it. But he said, my father was taken so that I could join the church and hear with an open mind and a heart. Well, eventually, the persecution became so intense. And not only did John suffer from the persecution, but so too did his beloved wife and their daughters. It seemed everyone was up in arms against them. And it made their lives a living hell. But then came the day when John made the decision that he was going to be baptized in the small river near to his home. He comments, quote, when I came home, my poor heartbroken wife felt my wet hair on my ear. Then she cried out loud and almost fainted, knowing that it was done, that I was now one of those terrible despised Mormons. She cried and wept all night. As John later recorded these events, he said, indeed, it makes me cry myself while I write these lines, for I know how awful she felt. He goes on to say, we had three children. She loved me and she loved our children, but she was torn. Her family, her parents, her grandparents, her siblings, all opposed John, all opposed the Mormons and did everything they could to stop her to defame the church. They told her that if she joined, I'm quoting, if she joined that horrible church, she would be lost forever in hell. She endured a full measure of the persecution that came upon John, and she wasn't even a member of the church. Finally, John announced that he wanted to immigrate to Zion. He wanted to come and be with the main body of the saints. And when you look at this story and the persecution, it's not hard to understand why they might want to leave their home country in the face of such hatred. But at this point, knowing what was happening, 
the persecutions of her family became so intense that they pulled her away from her husband, basically took her and the children away. John now faced the reality of having to immigrate to Zion without his family or stay in Switzerland, give up the church and keep his family. Can you imagine how hard that would be? I agree with Elder Holland. God could put me in his greenest piece of real estate anywhere in the universe, the most heavenly place he has. But if my family's not there, it's still hell. Nevertheless, John made the decision that if it came to that, he would go to Zion without his family if he had to. But not wanting to, he turned his heart to the Lord and poured out his soul in mighty prayer to God to help, as did John's sister, Verna, who was also a member of the church, as did John's wife. Following morning, I'll quote it to you. In the morning, she said, this is John's wife. Well, father and mother, I have decided to go with my husband to America. Her parents surprised her by saying, perhaps it is best you go and we will help you with your children and take you to your husband. John said, and I can only imagine, when I looked out the window the next morning, and saw my wife and three little girls accompanied by her parents coming down the street. Tears filled my eyes, and I knew my prayers and those of my sister had been heard and answered. The Lord touched their hearts, and my family was allowed to return to me, and they were permitted to undertake the journey in peace. End of quote. God is good. Sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. With stories like that in your family, I would write them down. I would tell everyone. I would make sure every child, every grandchild, and every great-grandchild knew the heritage that was theirs. Mindy, thank you for sharing. Another story October 23rd, 1856, between Sixth Crossing and Rocky Ridge, Wyoming. William James was tasked with burying the dead before they began their journey over Rocky Ridge as part of the Willie Company. William and his 13-year-old son, Reuben, as the company started off, remained behind to complete their grim duty. Once they finished, the James family raced on ahead to catch up with the company. Jane picked up the cart with Reuben. They began to pull and catch up with the main body of the saints. They did not go far before father, William James, collapsed in the snow. He tried several times to get up, but was unable. Mary Ann James, 11 years old, recorded the following. Mother was placed in an awful position. Her husband, unable to go any further, and her little children 
far ahead, hungry and freezing. What was she going to do? She said, Father said, go to the children and we will get in if we can. In other words, you go ahead, take care of the children. We'll come along as best we can. While Reuben remained with his father, Jane pushed on ahead and found the little ones by the side of the Sweetwater River, too tired, too frightened, and too cold to cross that water alone. Another daughter, Sarah, wrote, quote, we had forded this river many times, but it had never seemed so far across. It was about 40 feet to the other bank. And then she says, Mother soon had us on our way, end of quote. Sometime that night, that terrible, awful, arduous climb over Rocky Ridge, Jane James and the children found their way to the campground at Rock Creek and then turned their faces back. Where is father and where is Reuben? Every group that came into camp, they searched their faces for the two lost ones of their family. All night, they waited. Finally, towards morning, some of the captains went out to bring in the stragglers. And as they did so, they came into camp carrying the dead body of William James and the badly frozen Reuben. Reuben would live, though he would suffer with the injuries for the rest of his life. Some of you know the story of Rock Creek. Some of you've been there. And that famous mass grave where 13 people were buried in one morning. William James was one of those. After the, after the grave was dug and filled back in, a fire was built over it to kill the scent and keep the wolves away. In that cold and frozen icebox of Wyoming and under the grim and terrible conditions, Sarah records the following. I can see my mother's face as she sat looking at the partly conscious Reuben. Her eyes looked so dead that I was afraid. Her daughter Marianne said, imagine if you can, my mother, only a young woman of 41, her husband lying dead in a frozen wilderness with seven little children starving and freezing and crying for comfort. Indeed, can you imagine? Sarah records what happened next. She didn't sit long. My mother was never one to sit and cry. When it was time to move out, mother had her family ready to go. She put her invalid son in the cart with her baby and we joined the train. Our mother was a strong woman and she would see us through anything. And her daughter, Marianne added, her physical and mental endurance was nothing short of miraculous. End of quote. I've often thought, and I've said it before in these firesides, you're tougher than you think. 
you can do more than you believe. When you make up your mind, you can move mountains, make miracles, and accomplish the Lord's work. I believe that it's common, ordinary, garden variety, vanilla Latter-day Saints like you, like me, and like Jane James that make miracles every day. And yes, indeed, I know for a fact, and I echo what Elder Anderson said in the last conference, I have been witness to myself and have heard the accounts from you of the miracles in your lives. We still have heroes among us. This next story, I don't know that anybody has ever heard of this individual. Some people are saints because their religion says they are. Some people are saints because they're that good. And one of these is one of those individuals. The date was July 31st, 1856. The Willie Handcart Company was passing through Iowa and had just traveled through the community of Des Moines, Iowa. Now they're still early on in the trip. This is long before snows and Wyoming and Rock Creek and all of that. They're still in Iowa. They're just getting a good start. They passed through Fort Des Moines, Iowa. Now I know where that is. My mission was Iowa, Des Moines. I loved it. Did I know anything about hand carts when I was there? No, I was done in a post. But I sure learned later. They passed through Des Moines. And Iowa is famous in the accounts because it was more populated than what Nebraska would be later on. The people of Iowa would at those days come out and mock and deride, poke fun at the Mormons as they passed by, sometimes for their outlandish audacity and foolishness of thinking that they could pull a handcart all the way to Salt Lake City. Well, on July 31st, they passed through Des Moines and came out, I'll quote William Woodward's journal. He said, quote, we crossed on the flat boat bridge and passed about a mile through the town where we stopped till two o'clock to give the cattle water and grass. That's called nooning, where they could recruit their teams. We pursued our journey again about four miles. Now they're about what, five miles? the other side of Des Moines, where we encamped for the night, quoting, wood and water were plentiful here. Here it is. Mr. Charles Good, a respectable gentleman from the city of Des Moines, who seemed very favorable to the gospel from no impure motive, brought a present of 15 pairs of children's boots and being given with a free spirit, we received them. Evidently, this generosity by Charles Good was not an isolated incident. He had come to Des Moines some years before and established himself as a merchant. And then with his wealth, he then went about, quote, doing good. And this incident with the Latter-day Saints of giving 15 pairs of children's boots to the Willie Handcart Company, he continued that until his death in 1898. 
he continued to render charitable service to those in need. A community park is named for him in Des Moines, and a monument has been raised in memory of the kindness of the good Charles Good. Knowing the rest of the story about the Willie Handcart Company and what they endured, how much suffering did the kindness of Charles Good alleviate by the gift of 15 pairs of boots? Only the Almighty knows. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.